Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we're breaking down No Win Scenario, the fourth episode of Season 3 of Star Trek Picard. We'll conclude our podcast with the latest Star Trek news. Before we begin, please remember our analysis contains spoilers. So if you haven't yet watched this episode, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis for No Win Scenario. All right. As acting captain of the Titan, Riker finds himself and the crew seemingly powerless to change their likely deaths as they are pulled down in the nebula's gravitational well with no means of escape. The ship will be crushed within four hours, and life support may give out even before that time. Riker seems resigned to their hapless fate. He goes to Picard to let him know he was right about his assessment of Thad's effect on his outlook on life. He encourages Picard to get to know his own son better before the end comes. Picard takes Riker's advice and invites Jack to join him on the holodeck, which he programs as the Ten Forward Bar. The Admiral attempts to nurture a sense of connection between the two. However, Jack says outside of his relationship with his mother, he prefers to be unattached. After they speak for a while, other crew members enter the bar to spend what they believe may be their final hours there. In a flashback taking place five years ago, Picard attempts to enjoy his meal at the 10 Forward Bar in Los Angeles when he is interrupted by enthused Starfleet junior officers who want to hear about his exploits, specifically about his near-fatal adventure with friend and Beverly's husband, Jack Crusher. The two survived by finding a way to fly a disabled shuttle back to the Stargazer by working in sync and relying on thruster power. Back in the present, Picard asked Jack if Beverly had already told him that story. Just then, Shaw enters and starts disparaging Picard. We learned the captain had served as engineer on a ship that was ultimately destroyed by the Borg led by the assimilated Picard during the battle at Wolf 359. Shaw survived only due to the orders of a superior officer who commanded him to take the last seat in an escape pod. This is why Shaw holds such animosity towards Picard. Jack attempts to defend Picard, but the Admiral quiets him and before leaving, tells Shaw he understands. Beverly tells Picard and Jack she's been studying the timing of the eruptions made by the nebula. She theorizes the eruptions are analogous to birth contractions. If timed correctly, they could possibly take advantage of the power expended during the contractions to power up the ship and escape the nebula. The trio bring the plan to Riker, who is initially hesitant to take the risk, because if it fails, it will hasten their death. However, he soon realizes it is the only chance they have to survive a certain death. On the Shrike, 
Vadek reveals herself to actually be a changeling when she communicates to a superior. Her superior orders her to go after the Titan to retrieve the asset on board, despite the fact that the Shrike may be destroyed in the process. Moreover, they will need to jettison their portal technology to possibly survive the venture. Vadek reluctantly agrees to f- and follows the command. On the Titan, Commander Seven commits to tracking down the Changeling. After learning more about the race by talking to Shaw, she uses the ship's computer to locate a receptacle Changelings must use to regenerate. There she discovers the body of Ensign Foster, who appears to have been dead for two weeks. Mm. Seven comes across the Changeling, who has taken the form of another person. However, the Changeling kills a crew member and gets away before Seven can stop it. That receptacle, that must be interesting, considering, you know, they... It just seemed to be similar to the same one Odo used on Deep Space Nine. Mm. As if they could all go to the same store and get the exact same one. Maybe it's a new fashion trend. Maybe it is a new fashion trend, (laughs) yeah. Okay, Shaw follows Riker's request to reconfigure the nacelles to better enable the ship to absorb the power emanating from the nebula's contractions. Seven goes with the captain to serve as his assistant. On the bridge... Riker turns over the command of the ship to Picard since he must use a similar team process to navigate the ship through a treacherous asteroid field, similar to the method used with his old friend, Jack Crusher. In engineering, Shaw has almost completed his work when Instant LaForge appears saying she came to assist him. However, Seven soon deduces she is a changeling because she had told Riker not to send anyone down from the bridge to assist, and the imposter had referred to the commander as Hansen instead of her preferred name as Seven. After Shaw completes his task, power is diverted from life support. Then Picard is able to direct navigation of the Titan. The nebula contractions take place, powering up the Titan, although the Shrike appears. Riker uses the force field to grab one of the nearby asteroids and hurls it at the enemy ship. The Shrike is disabled, unable to make repairs for an hour. That provides plenty of time for the newly powered Titan to warp away to safety. At episode's end, Riker reconnects with his his estranged wife, Deanna Troy. Upon reflection of his encounter with the junior officers five years ago, Picard suddenly recalls a question from a young man sitting at a nearby bar stool who asked if Picard missed having a real family. Picard answered Starfleet was the only family he ever needed. At that moment, Picard realized the questioner had been Jack. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's a real lousy thing to hear when you're coming looking for your dad. (laughs) In Jack's quarters, he experiences another traumatic vision. He hears voices, a door opens, and a red color dominates. That's to show you that this is dangerous. That's right. That's the only reason why you use red. (laughs) He appears shaken by the occurrence. 
All right. Well, uh, I'm going to just move on into the credits. Go right ahead. <laughs> no Win Scenario was written by Terry Metalis and Sean Tretta. For the second week in a row, the episode was directed by Jonathan Frakes. Yes. Now let's get into the analysis. With its engines damaged by a redirected strike of its own photon torpedoes, the Titan is dead in space. The ship is slowly being pulled towards the center of the nebula, and the severity of the situation is painted starkly when Riker discovers their best option is to divert all remaining power to life support to purchase them four more hours before the entire crew meets certain death. No one scenario delves deeper into the characters as we explore the real dangers they face. The drama shifts from the crew fearing an external threat, Vedic, and the changeling spy, to an internal one, their own lack of faith and trust in one another. From the flashback scene, to the reactions as the Titans descent deeper into the gravitational well, the crew responds in various ways, confronted by what could be their final moments. Okay. Now let's talk about the theme. The theme of the episode is connection. Riker, Picard, Jack, and Shaw all show little to no faith in one another or their chances for survival. It's actually the women, both Beverly Crusher and Seven of Nine, who refuse to give up. They continue to seek solutions to their problems by making several attempts to either repair or establish connections between one another, as well as with the technology. All right. So here are some of our impressions. Just as with the two previous installments, no win scenario begins with a flashback scene that will grow in significance over the course of the episode. We see Picard from five years ago at the 10 forward bar approached by several Starfleet cadets as he attempts to eat his lunch. The interruption evolves into him entertaining them with several tales of his adventures and career achievements. The, the adoration of the cadets is juxtaposed to the rejected loneliness Picard experiences in the show's current time period. Now let's, let's talk about some of the characters that we thought really were highlighted in this episode. And naturally, I got to start off with my boy, Riker. <laughs> At the end of last week's episode, we saw Riker insisting Picard remove himself from the bridge because the result of his tactical advice had just killed them all. This is where the major rupture in faith occurred to trusted Starfleet officers who had experienced a great deal together. We've seen how each one of these men has leaned on the other over time. Riker shared his joy and pain when Thad was first born with Picard. And in season one, it was Picard who went to Nepenthe when he needed to escape to a safe place. Riker came to Picard's defense when the Romulans threatened to attack the synth's homeworld, Coppelius. And it was Riker again who Picard reached out to at the beginning of the season when he needed help to respond to Beverly's distress call. But this time, it's a haunted Riker who comes to Picard's aid. 
in the scene when he goes to him un, to unburden himself to Jean-Luc, Riker shares a story of looking into Thad's grave where he saw an endless abyss, not unlike the one that the Titan is being drawn into now. Huh? Well, Admiral, I thought that I you should apologize. I'm saying this to you as a courtesy. Stop. Mine. The Titan's dead in the water. We estimate about four hours until the ship is crushed by the gravity well. But we'll probably have run out of life support by then. You were right before. We buried our son. I watched the coffin being lowered into the ground. It was only six feet, but it was so dark. It was like infinite emptiness. And you and I have traveled to the far reaches of space. And yet there's nothing, nothing that proved to me that there is anything after and I've tried to shake that Deanna as you know feels everything but she couldn't live with me feeling nothing and neither could I which is why I left and I came here I was running from this only to find it again This is the end, my friend. And if I were you, I'd take the next few hours to get to know your son and to get your affairs in order. I'm so sorry, Sheldon. he says he takes away from that experience that there is no evidence of an afterlife so he has no hope of ever seeing his son again that feeling fuels his fatalism later on he won't be able to record his final words to Diana because of the depths of his despair it's odd to see a character as self-confident as Riker find himself speechless and resigned to die. In all honesty, he was rarely asked to be anything more than stoic in the face of adversity on TNG. Periodically, he would nurture Wesley, or he'd serve as a sounding board for Worf, but basically, Riker was written to be the action hero. All right. The only other time Riker questioned himself and his abilities was during the best of both worlds. Similar, similar to this season, he had to confront feelings of fatalism and hopelessness. Riker reflects these same emotions throughout his scenes with Picard and later on with Seven. She informs him of the changeling spy and he assigns her the task of hunting it down more to give her something to capture her attention 
rather than believing it will make a difference. We haven't seen him deliver this strong a performance in quite some time. No, in fact, you, you could see it on his face, the, the sense of uh, fatalism that, that he presents in this. So, so right. it's just very powerful as far as I'm concerned. And it's a nice counterpoint to what the, the women bring to this, this episode. That's right. Next, let's go on and talk about Shaw. Another wounded f- figure is Liam Shaw. He attempts to mask his pain behind an abrasive personality. Shaw's psychological issues, which Vatic hinted at in episode two, are on full display in this episode. It explains his behavior, but doesn't condone it. Unlike Benjamin Sisko, when he met Picard in The Emissary, the pilot for Deep Space Nine, Shaw drops all pretense of protocol and respectful behavior. The fact that he kept that amount of animosity of for Picard bottled up inside of him from the moment he met the man proves he's chosen an unhealthy way to deal with his trauma. It eventually comes out when Shaw enters the holodeck. His drinking on top of taking medication for his injuries is only going to make the matter worse. Although you had to assume something Borg-related must have made him so callous towards Seven, and it isn't until the monologue that we learn the truth. What a harrowing tale of survival. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt family time. I may be a little out of sorts. Your mother's pretty liberal with those pain meds. But, uh, speaking of harrowing stories, did your old man ever tell you about the time that he and I first met? USS Constance? Start A4400 2.3? starships up against one or cube yeah I was just an engineering just a, a grease monkey and the next second it's like it's like space itself was burning 50 of us made it down to the life deck but uh oh there's just one life pod, 10 seats. The thing is, we were all friends. They were all my Jack Crusher. We weren't, we didn't fight over who should live and who should die. No, we, we waited for orders. And then finally, some lieutenant comes down and she just starts pointing. That's an order. No, no, I don't. I ask myself the same thing. 
make a mistake. I'm sorry. Eleven thousand dead. Do you know where your old man was on that day? He was on that board cube setting the world on fire. Forget about all that weird shit of the stargazer. The real Borg are still out there and they have a name for you. Locutus of Borg. The only Borg so deadly, they gave him a goddamn name. All right, that's enough. No. No. It's all right. I understand. Computer, Arch. Forgive me. At some point, asshole became a substitute for Char. It's clear that Shaw suffers from survivor's guilt. To be one of 10 people who escaped death on the day when 11,000 souls perished is enough to make anyone say, why me? The monologue telegraphs that, but it doesn't justify his actions. He's unable to heal in the present state because everything around him reminds Shaw of that event. The Titan has Borg tech incorporated into its own technology. His first officer is a former Borg. So when the revered Admiral Jean-Luc Picard comes aboard, it's more than he can take. This episode is the first step towards attempting to redeem Shaw, working with Seven and his efforts to help get the Titan out of the nebula were only the beginnings of that journey. All right, so now let's talk about Vedic. Yeah, in her one scene. <laughs> with her single scene, we learned several things about Vedic. Specifically, she's one of the new breed of changelings we've been introduced to this season. Through a rather grotesque amputation of her hand, the material transformed into a communications device taking on the form of a floating head. We also learned that it was her mission to capture Jack. It's likely that she was behind the previous attempts to board the Aliels. The creature on the other end of the conversation was able to make Vedic cower. If Jack had died on the Titan, Vedic would have failed in her mission and possibly forfeited her own life. So we now know that there is something she fears. Now let's move on to another bit of interesting um, information that we get out of this episode. 
And that's Jack's vision. For the second time in a row, Jack is tormented by some strange vision. Um, as he stares at his own reflection in the mirror, we see those same thick red vines grow up the wall behind him. This vision is followed by the appearance of a red door, slightly ajar, and in the middle of a red wall. This time, however, Jack begins to beat his head as a voice beckons him to find me. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. Okay. So, we got to talk about this. Well, yeah. We'll, we'll wait for another episode. Okay. okay. All right. So here are some final thoughts. Picard's failed attempt to to connect with Jack is eventually successful because of Shaw's retelling of the battle at Wolf 359. His attempt to publicly humiliate the Admiral in front of the Titan's crew actually gave Jack a reason to empathize with his father. Specifically, since he understands being controlled by an external force. Right. And here's a fun fact that we've added. No win scenario is Jonathan Frake's 29th directing credit within the franchise. He's directed 27 episodes over the various TV series and two Star Trek films, First Contact and Insurrection. That's one more Star Trek directing credit than his good friend and, and teammate, LeVar Burton, <laughs> who was, prior to this episode, the reigning champion. Wow. Okay, so let's go to bits and pieces. And Gary has called this Revisionist History Edition. Yeah. So the changelings have a new look. Yeah, I, I, I heard about that. Fans of DS9 will note a change in the way the changelings look when they revert to their liquid form. Gone is the orange-gold liquid mercury appearance. Instead, this season of Picard has depicted them taking on a red marbled meat-like appearance. It's worth asking if this is an updated, modernized visual effect or is evidence something physiological has happened to this group of changeling dissidents who abandoned the Great Leap? Yeah, I wonder because they, you know, they look kind of disgusting now. They didn't right. used to look that way. Right. You know. Okay, next up in bits and pieces is Forget Me Please. Just as Picard Season 2 ignored several of the more stupid developments that came out of Season 1, now Season 3 is inviting us to forget some of the dumbest aspects of Season 2. Last season, you may remember, we had Agnes Girardi become the new Borg Queen and take a peaceful faction of the Borg Collective into a remote section of the Death Delta Quadrant to wait 400 years to then come, pop up at 2401 and help Picard address a universe-ending space anomaly. Now that entire situation is being has been dismissed by Captain Shaw when he said, forget about all that weird shit on the Stargazer. <laughs> the real Borg are still out there. All right, all right. Maybe if the showrunner from last season had held that same attitude, he wouldn't have gotten into fights with fans on Twitter when he tried justifying that weird shit. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> and um, next up, another change. Two things about the flashback scene at the 10 Forward Bar in Los Angeles 
that just don't make sense. First, in season one, Picard is described as the Hermit of Labar by Admiral Kristen Clancy. Remember he went when we went to Starfleet to ch- talk to her about getting the ship? And that's actually what she disparagingly called him. He was a re- recluse and wasn't and really hadn't been known to venture away from the vineyard in France pretty much since his resignation from Starfleet. So how could he have had lunch at 10 forward five years ago? All right. Secondly, Picard had never gone to the bar before he time traveled to the 21st century in season two. So how could he have uh, been getting lunch there five years ago where the cadets and Jack found him if he didn't even know it existed. It's hard to make that make sense. When Q, Q returned Picard to the 25th century, it was to the same moment when they had left. Right, so there was no way for him to take, all of a sudden, no, hey, I know this place. My good friend Guinan runs it, let me go by there. He couldn't have done that five years prior. Look, it's obvious that the, these anomalies are the byproduct of some cost cutting. The show had a small pre-production window between wrapping up season two and the start of production on season three. That meant that they were forced to reuse as much pre-existing scenery as possible. And we've seen watching The Ready Room, that's exactly what they did. Yeah. Yeah. The, this explains why Tin Ford has been the location for two of the flashback scenes yes. and that holodeck simulation. It makes cost-cutting sense. It just doesn't make narrative sense in the story that they're telling. So why would Titans... And, and the other thing that doesn't make any sense to me is why would the Titans holodeck have a program for a bar owned by Guinan when... No one on the ship before Riker and Picard get there actually know guy in it. Anyway, um, it just seems as if it's an odd element in this storyline. And it and it sticks out like a sore thumb. All right. Well, I want to talk about Jack's birth year. Okay. Last week, we said that Jack was 22 based on subtracting the year he was born in 2379 from the year that season three takes place as 2401. This week, we were given another confusing possibility. In a heart-to-heart scene between Picard and Jack, we have Picard questioning how old Jack is and then suggesting he's 23 or 24. If he is 23 or 24 and this season is taking place during 2401, then Jack must have been born in 2377 or 2378, two years before 2379, the year Beverly left the Enterprise in Star Trek Nemesis. However, she said in episode two, she discovered she was pregnant two months before she left. Since Jack didn't confirm Picard's assertion, we will have to wait for further information before drawing a definitive conclusion. And, and let's be honest, trying to keep track of people's ages in Star Trek can be extremely confusing um, because they aren't always consistent. 
That's right. So we can probably just rest to make sure that he, you know, a 34-year-old actor is playing a 22-year-old character. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, let's go to Star Trek news. And first, let's talk about The Ready Room. The latest installment of The Ready Room began with a featurette on the history of the Changelings. Will Wheaton then conducted an interview of Todd Stashwick, who provides insight into his character, Captain Liam Shaw. And he also informed us that Shaw is named after the actor Robert Shaw from Jaws, which is part of his Ahab kind of psychological trauma persona. Todd also uh, talked about his pleasure of obtaining the role in the Trek universe, of which he's been a longtime fan. The episode ended with a featurette on the science behind Picard with the show's science advisor, Dr. Aaron McDonald. This was followed by a trailer for the next episode of Picard entitled Imposter. And then let's talk about the, uh, Jonathan Frakes. There was an article in interview with him as he discussed um, his feelings towards Discovery being um, canceled after five seasons. In the recent interview for, at, on Cinema Blend, Jonathan Frakes spoke about the announcement that Star Trek Discovery will be ending its run with its fifth season broadcasting in 2024. He said, I'm, I'm disappointed in many ways. It was my new home show. When I started on the show in season one, it was a return to the Star Trek world for me. So I had a very strong connection to it. And Sonequa Martin-Green is not just my favorite, but kind of a favorite of anyone who has had the privilege of working with her. Her set is a joy to be a part of. A great cast. Michelle Paradise put together a fascinating series of stories. I felt, you know, I feel the pain. It's show business, but it still sucks. According to Cinema Blend, the silver lining behind Star Trek Discovery ending is that the cast and crew are getting a production extension to film a proper conclusion to the series, as well as proper setup for that conclusion. Jonathan Frakes didn't say one way or the other if he was going to be behind the camera or involved at all with the finale. He did indicate he knows what the plans are to wrap up these characters' respective stories and commented they're going to get a stunning plan for a very satisfying ending. However, when asked about the possibility of more adventures that are set in Star Trek's 32nd century, Frank stated, I wouldn't hold my breath. So just as we stated in last week's podcast, it is unlikely we will see the disco crew on screen again. Or any of their characters that they created. That's right. And that's really a shame. But again, like I said, this sounds just like what happened to DS9 when it when it ended. I mean, we're just now getting to them using changelings in storylines. Anyway. Next up, let's talk about Khan the Musical. According to a press release, Khan the Musical is coming. The musical, which is a parody of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and TNG will boldly venture off-Broadway beginning May 4th, beaming into the Players Theater. Set in 2366, 
and the time frame of TNG, Khan is a camp-heavy exploration of Data the Android's attempt at adapting the history of Star Trek The Wrath of Khan into a musical, resulting in a comedic mixture of William Shatner impressions, mutant space chickens, and Vulcan tap dancing. Mm. The coming of middle age story remains mostly true to the original film with the science with the sci-fi silliness turned up to 11. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> Con the musical is co-written, composed and features lyrics by Brent Black with additional material by co-conceiver Alina Morgan. John Lamp will direct. According to Black, a lot of TNG episodes feature storylines where Data has to learn something through trial and error, usually going a little too far or taking things a bit too literally. The idea that he would write a musical after studying classic Broadway shows of the past opened the concept of the show even wider to include send-ups of classical musicals. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Star Trek has always been ahead of the curve in terms of inclusivity and representation. And it's nice that this campy comedy show still maintains the spirit of that future Gene Roddenberry envisioned when he created the original TV show. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how long you think this gonna run? I don't know, but you know we're as you, um, you know we're going to New York. Yes, I know we're going to New York. And if it's in the, still in the there, summer. if it's still there, I would go see it. Really? Yeah. Really? Why not? Okay. But in closing, we'll be back next week with our analysis of Imposters, Episode Five of Star Trek: Picard, Season Three. Before we sign off, we would like to remind you to share a link to Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. Also, since we've been producing this show since September of 2017, we want to suggest that you explore our full catalog of episodes. Our podcast includes analysis of every episode of Star Trek Discovery, Picard, Lord Dex, Prodigy, and Strange New Worlds, as well as reviews of the short treks and several special topic shows. Please recommend our podcast to your friends or family members who want to dig deeper into the Star Trek universe. Until that time... Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter and Instagram at Star Trek AOD. Facebook at facebook.com slash Star Trek AOD. At our website, StarTrekAOD.net where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and other aspects of the show. Also, email the show at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.